Well, today we are going to finish up this uh, long stretch of study of Romans 5, 1 through 11, and we're going to focus in on the final verse today, verse 11, but I'm going to read it from the very beginning uh, of chapter 5, and it all hangs together, and uh, we're going to put the cap on it this, this, uh, this, this Sunday. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us today. Well, I like ice cream in any form. Uh, and that's a bit of an understatement. I love ice cream. I just have to steer away from it usually because of the calories. But when I have an ice cream sundae, I like the whipped cream and the cherry on top. And I know not everyone likes the cherry. I do. And I like eating sundaes with people who don't like the cherries because that means more for me. Well, when we come to... Uh, Verse 11 here in Romans 5, and I mean this in the most positive way, verse 11 is the cherry on top of this passage, the cherry on top of your favorite ice cream sundae. Uh, it pulls it all together and points it all to, to the Lord. Now this will be our last look, as I mentioned, at these first 11 verses of chapter 5 where Paul has, and we have seen this, has laid out six different results of justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Now we've already considered peace with God, access and standing with God, a future hope in which we rejoice, the ability to rejoice even in the midst of suffering, a secure salvation which reaches its consummation after Christ returns, and today we focus on the result of justification described in verse 11. Rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We might be tempted to just read over that, but it really does tie it all together. Now, we must understand as we break it down a little bit here that the word translated rejoice here in verse 11 is not the typical word for rejoice. There's a more common word that's used for rejoice in the New Testament. You see that in places like Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. That's the typical word for rejoice. The word here 
The Greek word means to boast or to brag or to revel or glory or exult. Now, interestingly, this verb boast or rejoice as it's translated here is usually used in a negative sense like self-exaltation or or, uh, bragging about yourself. And when we look back through Romans, interestingly, the verb, the preposition, and the noun, boast in God, that same phrase is used in chapter 2, verse 17, but in a negative sense. Boasting in chapter 2 is condemned. Let me read it to you. Paul says, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, that's exactly the same words in Greek as chapter 5, verse 11. If you call yourself a Jew, rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, as I said, 5.11 uses those very same words as 2.17, but as a positive trait, not as a negative trait like it is used in chapter 2. In verse 11, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Now, I hope, as I read chapter 2, that the difference between the boasting in God is obvious, but I want to, to, to break it down, spell it out a little bit, because I believe when we see the contrast between these two, that will help us better understand what verse 11 of chapter 5 means. Now, in chapter 2, Obviously, Paul is, is condemning the boasting of the Jews in their own privileges. They had the knowledge of God's law unlike any other people, especially uh, unlike the pagan Gentiles who didn't know God's law at all. They had the knowledge of God's law. They uh, had more light and understanding of God's will than anyone else on the planet at that time. They were proud of this. And they boasted in it. They boasted in their relationship with God. However, as Paul is pointing out here, their religion was hypocritical. They had the law, but they did not keep the law. The knowledge was in their heads, but it did not show in their actions because it was not in their hearts. They thought they had a monopoly on God that they were the ones who had sole possession of God, that they were superior to everyone else. But their religion made no difference in the way that they lived. They were no better than the pagans, as Paul is pointing out in chapter 2. Paul condemns their hypocrisy there. Now the modern equivalent to that is the person who boasts that they are a Christian, Uh, They have great knowledge of the Bible, the Scriptures, 
But their Christianity makes little difference in the way that they live their lives. That's what Paul's condemning there. That type of boasting in God that says, I'm self-righteous. They're really not boasting in God. They're actually boasting in themselves and their knowledge. But here in chapter 5, boasting is God is not like those hypocrites who boast in God as if he were their exclusive property and that they had a monopoly interest in him. Christian boasting in God, described here in chapter 5, begins with the shame-faced recognition that we have no claim on him at all. It continues with wondering worship that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and ends with humble confidence that God will complete the work that he has begun in us. It is all his doing from beginning to end. So to boast in God is not to rejoice in our privileges, in our own knowledge or our own works, but in God's mercies. Not in our possession of him, but in his possession of us. That's what we boast in. The hypocritical boasting of chapter 2 is, as I've said, really not boasting in God, but rather is boasting in self. It says, well, I've got a handle on God. I've, I've got God in my pocket. I have a lot of knowledge about the Bible. I was raised in a Christian home. I go to church every Sunday. I, I, I. You see the recurring pronoun there. I, it's all about me. My confidence is in my own grasp of things. My own actions, not in God through Jesus Christ, as verse 11 describes. Now that sort of self-centered religion lends itself to hypocrisy because there's no real power to change. It begins and ends with the self. And the only change that you can make is limited to your own willpower. And, of course, willpower can only take you so far. And what usually happens is that you end up either living in a life of secret sin while you look good on the outside of everyone else, like the Pharisees, Jesus condemned, or you lower the bar and make excuses for sin, doing sinful things in the name of Christian freedom. That's a life of hypocrisy, a life of self-sufficiency. But look at the argument of chapter 5. Paul has argued that becoming right with God, justification, is a free gift from God through what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection. It is received by faith. The person who is justified by faith has now a close relationship with God. They can come freely into his presence. They have an airtight, secure hope for eternity. Even the suffering they might endure in life is fulfilling God's purposes for them. All of this is theirs, not because they deserved it or earned it, but because of what Christ has done. God secured all this for them, as it says, while they were still sinners. Now that the justified have a relationship with God and are no longer his enemies, as it points out there in the previous couple of verses, they can be all the more sure that God will finish the work that he has started in them. Because of all this, 
because from beginning to end, it is all God's doing. God is the one who saves us from beginning to end. Because of this, we boast in God. It's all His work. He's done it all, and now the justified give glory to God. They boast about Him, and they enjoy Him forever because of all that He has done for them. Paul was a great man. In Philippians, he talks about how he was, in reference to the law, blameless. He kept the law very well, but he says, all those things that were gained to me, I counted them lost for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. See, he made his boast in God. He says to the Galatians in chapter 6, far be it from me to boast, and he had a lot to boast about, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul was all about Christ. You see, you see it in the way that his life changed when he encountered Christ. His pursuit was all to, to boast in Christ, to glorify Christ and to make Christ known so that others could boast in him. Others could worship him. That's the boasting that he's talking about here. A recognition that God has done everything. And you owe it all to him. And you want to respond by living for him. Showing your gratitude to him for all that he's done for you. The question before us today is, do you experience this rejoicing, this boasting in God? This reveling in God. Well, often we don't. If we're honest with ourselves, we often don't. And why is the question? Why don't we? And there are at least three reasons. I've, I've found three reasons why we don't, and I'll share them with you now. Why don't we make our boast in God? Why don't we revel in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, we either, well, we don't understand justification by faith, either intellectually or practically. Now, intellectually speaking, sometimes people just don't grasp what Paul's been talking about here in chapter 3 and chapter 4, that salvation is completely the work of God. The completeness, the fullness of what Jesus did for them on the cross, they don't understand that. They think that they have to somehow contribute their own works to salvation. They don't grasp that. And if you're the one contributing something, then you're taking some of the glory away from God. You're doing something. And so you can boast in yourself. Well, I've done this. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I did this, or I'm a good person, or this or that or the other. We have our own list of things that we make as requirements to say that I'm a believer. But that's, that's a misunderstanding of justification by faith. It is completely all the work of Christ. And our response is to believe it. As the hymn says, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It wasn't washed by my deeds. It was washed by Christ dying on the cross. Now, yes, intellectually, we can fail to grasp what justification by faith actually means. 
And usually that will lead us to despair because we will soon recognize that we are sinners if we're really trying to contribute to our salvation and live up to a certain standard, we realize we can't. And we'll see the darkness of our hearts. And it will lead us to despair because who's to save us? If we can't save ourselves, we don't, if you don't understand that it has to be all of Christ. So it'll either lead us to despair or you'll teeter between frustration as you fail and then pride when you succeed. Pride in yourself and it leads to uh, uh, self-righteousness towards others. You know, I'm, I'm being successful right now at doing these things, at living up to the standard, and you look down on everybody else who doesn't meet that standard. It's a misunderstanding of justification by faith. Some people don't get it intellectually. Some people do get it intellectually, but not practically. And this applies to all of us at times, because we fall into... Knowing the truth, knowing uh, full well theologically what justification is, but we live like it depends upon ourselves and our own actions. As Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it in his commentary on this passage, he says we, we kick self out the front door, you know, reliance upon self for salvation, we kicked it out the front door and it snuck around back and came in the back door. And that sometimes happens to us. We understand the doctrine of justification by faith, and we understand the gospel, but we live as if it all depended upon ourselves. And that's a, a way that we don't enjoy boasting in God. We don't rejoice in the Lord because we uh, are acting like it depends on us, and we're getting frustrated because we can't live up to the standard. Or we become proud because we are having some success at living what we have described as the Christian life. So we must understand justification by faith intellectually and practically, functionally in our lives. And the second reason we don't uh, glory in the Lord or make our boast in the Lord or give him all the credit for everything is because we don't spend adequate time with the means of grace. That's the second one. We don't spend adequate time with the means of grace, especially the Word. You know, many people read the Bible... Uh, but read it cursely, do a devotion, pray. We've checked all the boxes, but we haven't really meditated upon what the scriptures actually mean. We haven't examined them closely and meditated upon it. Not meditation like Eastern religions do, where you're supposed to empty your mind of all thought and meditate and think of the sound of one hand clapping, which I don't know how you do that. Christian meditation is taking scripture, taking a, a fact about God and turning it over in your mind, thinking of it. It's like eating a piece of hard candy. You're sucking all the goodness out of it, thinking it through, reflecting on it. Tim Keller has a great illustration. He says in, in the building in which he once lived, there was a vending machine, Coke machine. He said you could drop the coin in but you could hear that it didn't drop all the way and you know, nothing would happen when you hit the button. So you have to bang on the machine to get the, get the coin to drop. And then when you hear it drop, you could get whatever you were desiring to get from the machine. Well, our hearts are that way. Yes, we can insert the knowledge into our heads, but 
there needs to be a little banging on it so the penny will drop and will grasp it and it will become clear to us and we can see the application in our lives. A cursory reading of Scripture is fine. We should read through the Scriptures, but we need to meditate upon it, to think about it, to seek to apply it to our lives. Some people say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach it. Work it in there. Remember it. Meditate upon it. Think about it. When you don't do that, you forget it. And the, the old self comes creeping in the back door. The great hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, then, when I've surveyed it, surveyed it, taken account of it, examined it closely, thought it through, when I survey the wondrous cross, then my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. I see clearly I have perspective. I understand what's really important and what's really not when I have meditated upon it. So taking the time to do so is important. We're very busy in our modern lives. But what, what are we doing? Where are our priorities? What's important to us? That leads us to the third thing, which is really built upon the first two. We don't really fully grasp justification intellectually or functionally and we don't spend time meditating upon these things in Scripture, then it will lead us to idolatry. Other things become important to us. Other things become our boast. All we need to do to figure out where our boast is is to look at our calendars and look at our checkbooks. Where do we spend our time and where do we spend our money? And that will show you what is most important to you? It becomes our boast. That's what we're all about. That's the center of our universe. That's where our world is. We're boasting in it. We're glorying in that. That's where we're pursuing. That's where we're living. That's what we are chasing after. See, if you're too busy for God, it means that you're not too busy for something else. There's something else you're spending your time and money on. Something else matters most. Where do you spend the time? Where, where do you spend your time and money? That will show you what your boast is. Now, I'm not saying you should spend all day reading God's Word, but is there time carved out there? Is it a priority in your life to meditate upon the Scriptures and to dwell upon the Word for a while to prepare yourself for going out into the world and doing what you do? Yesterday at our men's breakfast, we reflected on Luke chapter 5 where Jesus calls the disciples. Uh, as he's preaching there, he preaches in Peter's boat and, and after he's finished, he tells them to, to drop the nets out. You know, they were sitting there cleaning their nets. They've been fishing all night and, you know, he's a carpenter. He's not a fisherman, so I'll be like, I don't think so. But Peter says, Lord... We haven't caught anything all night. I've just cleaned up the nets. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And of course, he catches a bunch of fish. And he's so certain that it's divine intervention, that God has done that. He falls down before Jesus and he says, uh, you know, go away from me. I am a sinner. I am, I am a sinful man, O Lord. They were astonished at what Jesus had done. And Jesus says to them, follow me. And what do they do? They had, 
when they had brought their boats to, sh- to the land and all that fish, which would have certainly been an economic boom for them, they left everything and followed him. They left everything. They just left it there and followed him. They found something more important. They found something that was more important than even making a living. They found Jesus Christ. Jesus says to us, follow me, follow me. Uh, He's done it all for us to make it possible that we can be his children, to be his followers, his disciples. What are we pursuing? What are we following? That's the question before us. Our hearts are fickle, and we, as Calvin said, are idle factories, and we get our mind and heart set on other things. Well, today, we're called by Christ to, to return. He's always welcoming sinners back home. And that's what the table is all about as well. He's inviting us to come and to have fellowship with him, to sit down at the table and renew that relationship, to have a reminder of all that he's done for us, that he has done for us fully and freely so that we can boast in him and all that he's done for us. Let's pray together.